1: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I wanna welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Virginia Sampson. Virginia is passionate about disseminating the science-based message of the power of compassion to create success in all areas of our lives. She's been a practicing litigation attorney since 1982. She currently practices elder law, helping seniors with their legal issues. Virginia has had a full and challenging life. She's been a full-time caregiver to her husband who died from ALS, a victim, of domestic violence, a single parent to four children, a widow, a divorcee, a step-parent, and more. Her professional and personal challenges inspired her to study and learn about the science of compassion, self-compassion, and happiness. She's the author of a book for adults, Compassion Magic, and started a children's series about compassion with superhero Sam Saves His Family. Virginia writes for ThriveGlobal.com, the publication of Ariana Huffington. She travels nationally and internationally to speak about the power of compassion. Welcome, Virginia. And thank you, Cheryl. One of my favorite subjects, compassion, so I'm looking forward to, to talking about it with you today and, and hearing more about your perspective. Um, so let's start at the begin at the beginning um, I get the the sense from reading your book that um this idea that compassion could help you with your life developed gradually um through many many experiences um, Could you tell us a little bit about that that road to compassion for you
2: sure i you know I think um when I, when I had some of the challenges I faced, I think my first reaction was to be angry, uh, whether it was a life or the other person or, uh, and, and then a little bit bitter. And, and I think that, um, it took some maturity to be able to understand that a lot, I, that a lot of it was a result of the choices I had made. I had to take a lot of responsibility for that. And it was about forgiving myself and about forgiving others. Mm. And out of that grew. And I think forgiveness is a huge part of compassion. So when I could start getting out of the heartache and the pain and the anger and see it from a different perspective, from the other person's perspective, uh, I was able to have compassion for them. And when I was more accepting of myself, I was able to have compassion for myself and forgive myself. So uh, that whole mix, I think, is compassion. And, and then you start to operate from a different place uh, a place of compassion rather than a place of anger or bitterness
1: This is something that compels my thought a lot that you have to be able to look at your responsibility uh, without blame. Am I am I hearing some agreement from you on that?
2: That, that yeah, you recognize it I but think in compassion there's no room for blame or judgment. You know it is what it is and we deal with it as it is and we have to uh, you know, I mean, I think we have this idea of perfection uh, in our culture and maybe it's just, you know, in our personal lives, and I think you need to drop that and uh, because if you hold yourself up to that standard, whether it's as a caregiver or a parent or whatever it may be, I think a lot of our frustration grows out of that, and I think, um, you know, Seeing ourselves as we are and accepting ourselves as we are without judgment and without blame is a huge part, huge step in in finding compassion in our lives for ourselves and others.
1: One thing that catches my attention in your biography is um, having experienced domestic violence. And, uh, of course, one thing that people talk about in that field is being almost too forgiving Um, you know, kind of accepting the other person's um, uh, things that shouldn't be acceptable. Can you talk a little bit about how you put those two things together?
2: Well, I think that comes from a place of um, you have to look inside yourself, I think, first when it comes to domestic violence, right? Because at some point, and I realize people are in very desperate circumstances, and I don't mean this in a cavalier way, but in some sense, we are allowing ourselves to be victims. Uh, and I think when you start looking at yourself and how you feel about yourself and why you're permitting or accepting that behavior, I think that's what can spark your change, Um I know, and that usually, like for me, it was a result of, I think, a childhood where my mother was very emotionally abusive and verbally abusive, so you almost feel like that's just what you deserve or all that life has to offer, and you have to put up with it. But this is where some of the self-compassion comes in. When you start to um, validate yourself, honor yourself, and care for yourself more, you realize that that's unacceptable behavior, and then I think things can start to change for you in my situation, and I don't know, uh, you know, it just meant getting out of it. It's difficult. You know, you can change yourself, but obviously you can't change someone else. So that started me on the road to, you know, extricating myself from that relationship.
1: So in other words, in that circumstance, what you really needed to practice was self-compassion and yes. and learning to care about yourself and how you are experiencing things and kind of um, accept the truth of what you could and couldn't handle?
2: Yes, and what I, and you know, for me, it, what really sparked it was my children, right? So I think, um, I, I don't know about a lot of women, but sometimes I can, I, we, I tend to put, I think most women do, maybe other people's needs ahead of our own. And so when I saw my children suffering the results of this domestic violence is I think what really sparked me to have the strength to make a change. I don't know that I could have done it just for myself, at least not right away. I think eventually I would have. But the fact that I didn't want them to live like that and experience that was a real catalyst for me to take some action. So
1: there's a there's a kind of alchemical quality here. Which which spot do we apply our compassion? Because um, there's of course compassion for the humanity of the other person, even if you don't accept their actions. There's the compassion for people also being harmed, and then there's compassion for yourself. All kind of uh, woven together.
2: Yes, and I think you do need to. Um start with the self-compassion i mean i think the catalyst of compassion for my children sparked it but i think in order to do it you have to you know you know feel that you don't deserve this that that you know i think at some level Mm -hmm. we think that maybe we deserve this and when you start practicing some self-compassion and caring for yourself as you would for a friend which is basically what self-compassion is it's just offering it to yourself kindness and caring and um when you start doing that, I think is when you you start as a caregiver or a victim of domestic violence. You can start to heal and set boundaries. know, I think that's one of the things we have a hard time doing, especially I noticed as a caregiver, um, is to set boundaries. And even as a partner in a marriage that's you know where there's domestic violence, um, you, you need to set boundaries and you need to feel good about yourself and that it's okay for you to have boundaries.
1: And so there's there's kind of a, a interesting mix there that uh, because I do think a lot of people who try to practice compassion think that means no boundaries, um, that you just uh, understand the other person and uh, don't set any limits, and you're saying uh, quite to the contrary that it's that. Having your boundaries in order actually contributes to a sense of compassion. Um, that that it's easier to find your compassion if your boundaries are in order.
2: Right. I think it's a balance, and I think there's a difference between pity and compassion. I mean, compassion is really it is a balance between compassion for yourself and compassion for others. I don't think you have to be a doormat if you're compassionate. I think part of the self-compassion piece is setting the boundaries. And uh, until you do that, I'm not sure that what you're feeling for the other person is compassion, because if you're being taken advantage of or you're being abused, I, I don't know if that's the definition of compassion. So I would say, it, yeah, it is a balance there of self-compassion and compassion. And whether you're dealing with your children, you know, I had struggles with my children as a result of these situations, you know, setting boundaries is really, um, some would say tough love, an act of compassion. Right, that you are helping them on the road to healing by not accepting all their behavior and by setting some limits for them. So, that is in itself a compassionate act, I think.
1: Oh, I like that uh, amplification there. You know, it it reminds me of something uh, one of my. Primary teachers with Stephen Levine. I spent a lot of time with him, and and he would say, no, no one's a good enough guru to be a parent. So we're kind of on the edge of that. That um, it's complicated, isn't it? What um what compassion looks like in a situation where you're uh, kind of responsible for other people, uh, what what compassion leads to, maybe because sometimes, of course, parenting does involve. Um, Setting firm limits, doesn't
2: it? Yes, and I think that's a lesson that we learn as parents. You know, we can be um, yeah, it can almost be too loving and too permissive. I mean, I think I found myself on that as a result of what my children went through with the illness and death of my husband, and I kind of wanted to make up for. All of that trauma and all that tragedy by trying to fix everything and give them everything and do everything for them—that was exactly the wrong thing to do. That was—I <laughs> mm. I thought that was being compassion, but being compassionate, I think, was trying to get them back to reality and setting limits so that they could have their, you know, have self-esteem, have self-compassion, and um, you know, understand and become independent adults. I mean, you're not an independent adult when somebody's doing everything for you and fixing everything for you. Right, you have to learn to yes. solve these things on your own. You want somebody to support you and guide you, but you have to set limits on that because they have to do their part.
1: Um, that brings up something that I was thinking about quite a bit reading the book, which is in uh, you've had a, a few different marriages that brought up different um, issues with compassion, and I was, um, you know, aware of of relationships I had with people. Uh, before the relationship in which I took care of my wife when she was ill, Um, and the difference between an experience where you're uh, maybe accepting things in a relationship, perhaps you ought not to, and the difference between that and taking care of someone who's ill, who really does need you to do that. Um, To me, that's... um, a very big compassion and boundary question, and I wonder how those two uh, experiences compare inside of you. Because they both ended up with losses.
2: How I elected to divorce, how that compared with, you know, taking care of my husband, or you're saying in terms of caring for my husband, how did I get to that point that I could do that? uh,
1: I mean, for for me anyway, there was, uh, in a a sense, it was... um, uh, the The loss of relationships that were bad relationships was sometimes more painful on one level, and then, of course, losing someone to death very much more painful on another level. Um, so, I what I was imagining as I read was that those two experiences kind of developed your compassion differently, and I wonder if, wondered if you thought so.
2: Yeah, I would say. Um... The divorce situations developed more my self-compassion um, and my setting boundaries and saying it was okay for me to have my needs met. I mean, eventually, I, I had some compassion for the other person, I don't think, especially as I matured. I was angry and bitter and blamed them for everything like I'd done when I was younger. And I think in terms of the illness and caring for my husband for the three years, um that was more of a compassion for him i think i did accept of self compassion to set boundaries as you know because of some of the ways he handled the illness but mm, yes yeah i think that was just i would say you know it was just a little bit different in that sense the emphasis in the divorce more in self compassion and in the illness more in compassion for him
1: uh yeah i i was you know i i had a um a fairly uh, how how should I put it? I guess my wife was very kind in her illness uh, and, and illness for her opened her up very much. And so I was imagining, and I, and of course, I've had friends for whom that wasn't true that um, the person got kind of more closed. Uh, I, 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 had a hard time imagining for myself how that would have been because it wasn't my experience. Um, but I do think that's a real challenge, isn't it? To, uh, continue to engage compassion when someone is not rewarding you in a, in a way. Um, because it sounds as if your husband kind of went into himself when he was ill. Would that be fair to say?
2: Yeah, I, that's so true. And I think, um, I never forget. I had a conversation with, uh a friend of ours who was a therapist, and I, I remember expressing my anger and frustration that my husband, um, you know, wasn't handling, wasn't opening up, wasn't, um, you know, was was so angry, angry to the end. I mean, he just died angry. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm probably gonna cry, but I'll mm-hmm. never forget. He said to me, "That's said, fine know, people, on this program. <laughs> <laughs> people, you know, die like they live." And it's true. My husband was kind of closed when he was healthy, and he was a bit of an angry person. Uh, and I guess I it, c- couldn't really expect him to, you know, become like one of those old-time movies, you know, where the person just wants to take care of everybody and love everybody and, you know, no open Hollywood up ending. before they die. It just <laughs> it just didn't work that way with us. And then I said to myself, who am I so arrogant to think that I should tell him how he should die? right? Mm. That isn't really, that's not compassionate, right? He's going to, that's kind of arrogant on my part to tell him he's not doing it right. He's not doing it the way I want him to do it. So you, you come to accept that this is the way he is and this is the way he chooses to do it and you honor that. And I think when you, then you can stop being angry and bitter about it and say, I will choose to be the way I want to be and he's going to choose to be the way he wants to be and I can accept that.
1: So that's a big fat lesson in compassion, from my view. And I, uh, we're we're about it at the point for our first break, and it and it leads naturally to what I want to talk about when we get back, which is uh, compassion fatigue, um, that that can happen in those caregiving situations. I have the idea that it's um, it's maybe even more likely to happen in those situations where you're kind of not, um, uh, it's not warm and fuzzy, you know, where you're giving and giving and giving and the other person is, is maybe not returning that, um, within the limits that they, that they can. But I, I want to hear your opinion about that when we get back. Okay. Sure. Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect with my email, etc. And to find Virginia Sampson, you can go to her book, Compassion Magic. Uh, We'll be back after the break. Mm
3: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
4: Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show. Every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness.
3: Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reish, In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
4: There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated. With your host, Kristen Harper. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up?
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Virginia Sampson, the author of Compassion Magic. And Virginia, before the break, I was saying I really wanted to spend some time um, unpacking compassion fatigue a bit. Having experienced it and and having some ideas about how to recognize it and get through it, um, that's something I know you've worked with quite a bit, and I I thought it would be helpful to listeners to hear some about, um, you know, what it is, how you recognize it, what what to do when you find yourself in that kind of spot.
2: Sure, I think. Uh... It's like any kind of, uh, you know, when you're in the throes of caring for someone, you tend to put all of your needs and feelings on hold, right? And, and some of that you need to do because there's so, much, so many demands, even just physical demands of caring for somebody else that you, you can't always be in the moment. And so when you repress things like that, I think then they, you, you can start to feel depressed uh, you can feel you know cynical you can feel disconnected from people you're starting to feel cut off when you start to notice those things, whether you're cut off from you know the person you're caring from or the other people in your life that's that's typically a red flag that you're starting to experience some compassion fatigue um, and that you probably need at that point in time to to take some time for yourself. Uh, even just little bits of times, and there's little... The science of compassion is a fascinating area that they're studying at Berkeley, Stanford, all over the world, and they've done a lot of research on compassion and its benefits and self-compassion and its benefits for our physical and our psychological health. And they've come up with practices that actually they've established help you become self-compassion help you become more compassionate and reap these benefits. So um, when you find yourself in that situation, there's some things that you can do that can be relatively simple and quick um, to kind of get you back on track. It's like anything, you know, it's not a super quick fix, but you can do these little things on kind of a daily basis, like a five-minute self-compassion break, and kind of get yourself back on track and hopefully stave it off in the future. Um, and it's just all about you know being loving and kind to yourself. Uh, and so, in and your in your own start.
1: oh, in your own experience, you're talking about a five or ten minute self-compassion break, which is an interesting. Um, it 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 uh, connects with another uh, uh, person I've had on this show who wrote a book called Soul Care for the Caregiver. A lot of little practical suggestions about how to care in a situation that, where there's not much time how to care for yourself um, but what worked for you? what are some of the things you did in that five or ten minutes that that seemed to um, ease the the weight of caregiving
2: Well I didn't know at the time about these specific, Scientifically, you know, proven practices for say take a self compassion break, and some of it I still feel guilty about. I have to say. So, my husband obviously had a lot of anxiety, and he was, um, you know, I don't. People probably know about Lou Gehrig's disease, but basically, they call it the coffin disease. You, you're pretty much trapped in a dead body, right? So, mm-hmm. my husband would be sitting in his chair in bed, and um, didn't really need anything, but he always wanted me there, which I understood. So um, I would—I bought a baby monitor, and I put it next to him so that if I had to leave the room or take a little break, he could call me. Now, as it always happened, the minute I left the room, he would call me on the baby monitor. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Why am I not I shocked? <laughs> just, I would just ignore it sometimes. I mean, I know that he didn't need anything. I'd checked on everything. he'd had water. He was fine. He was comfortable. I think it was just his anxiety. And I actually, at times I just, I just couldn't cope with it. I just couldn't cope with the demands. I needed a break from it. So I would actually go to another part of the house and I would turn off the baby monitor for five minutes or 10 minutes and I would just listen to the silence uh, and feel at least for 10 minutes that I didn't have, you know, constant demands on me for attention or whatever it might be that helped me cope with it at the time uh a little bit uh also we had a you know when my uh husband was diagnosed with the disease our our uh, sorry, our son was only 2 weeks old and we had three other kids so Uh, In a way, that was difficult. In a way, it was a blessing because I had to attend to him. And that was something that my husband honored. So in the days that I could take my husband out in the wheelchair and the baby, you know, just getting out and even if we would just go like to the little gym or something and let my son, who was a toddler at that time, play a little bit, that was some relief from the constant demands of caregiving because we had something else to focus on, including my husband, focusing on something than being ill. So I tried to find little things like that that I could put in in a weekly or as often as I could, just little breaks. Hopefully things that my husband could enjoy too when we did things with my son or I'd go out in the backyard and I'd throw the ball with my son and put my son, my husband would be in the wheelchair watching. Just little breaks like that from thinking about something other than illness and death. It brings up an interesting. It didn't have to be a long period of time. It was just you could switch off that part of your brain and realize there were other things in life, uh, pleasant things in life that you could enjoy and that you could look forward to.
1: Well, it brings up a a, a kind of a um, interesting point to me that self compassion, self care, all those words—they're very contextual. The things that I needed to do in the context of having uh, that's familiar to me. I had an ill uh, wife and a and a baby at one point and then a toddler <laughs> a little later. Um, the things I would do to care for myself then are not the same things uh, I do now with a more spacious uh, life, you know, more room for self-care. Uh, and I, I resonate with the idea that it, sometimes it's it's very small, things that don't take a ton of time, but that remind, kind of remind your psyche that you matter to yourself, I guess. Uh, Is that familiar to you?
2: Yeah, you matter to yourself. And that, for me, it was a big part of, like I said, to realize that there was something in life, because I think when you care for someone, you just, you know, I never forgot my husband's diagnosis, how do you live with that pain every day? You know, how do you wake up and every day know that the person that you love most in the world is dying, right? And how do you do you do that? And so that can become overwhelming. So when you can step out of that for even a little bit of time and not think that, I, it, it was always in the back of my mind, you know, he's dying, what's going to happen? You got a lot of worry and anxiety, too, about how are you going to handle this? How's he going to handle it? You have financial concerns, concerns about your kids. So I think if you can step out of that for even a short period of time, it eases that burden, and it does remind you that there will be life after this, and there is mm. happy life going on around you and other places in the world. And I felt that that kind of eased my burden, Um, and help me come back to take care for him in a better frame of mind, not as resentful, like, you know, because you can start blaming him, you can start blaming the world, you can start getting angry, but I think just a little break gives you a different perspective on all of that, I guess is what I'm saying. And you can come back and you're a better caregiver as well as because you've nourished yourself somewhat.
1: That's interesting because I say to actually clients a lot and to myself too that um i never learned so much about taking care of myself as i did when i was caring for someone else because if i didn't do it i just didn't do well uh actually i hurt myself a few times physically and i could certainly get kind of um gritty, you know, not as not as open and loving. If I didn't do something like what you're talking about, it sounds like that might be familiar to you too.
2: Right, and I think that's what I when I talk to caregivers, I say to them, you know, because obviously if you're a caregiver, you're already a very compassionate person, or you wouldn't be a caregiver. Right? I think caregivers struggle more with the self-compassion piece of our lives than the compassion piece. And so I find what helps, what helped me and what helps caregivers that I talk to is by telling them that you will be a better caregiver if you take care of yourself. And I think that resonates with them because, again, they're, we're, they're very compassionate people, so you go back to saying, okay, by taking care of myself, I'm actually being more compassionate and being a better caregiver for my loved one. And I think that can spark... The real drive to start taking care of yourself. Now, I start. You think you start experiencing the other benefits, but I think that can be a catalyst when you're in that whole situation to get you to step out and take a start taking care of yourself.
1: Um, so that swings me around to something I wanted to follow up on more. You were talking earlier in a general sense about the um, the benefits of compassion, um, but I wonder if you could go into a little more detail scientifically what what is being said about what benefits us when we practice various forms of compassion?
2: Well, they've discovered huge health benefits for practicing compassion. And when they're talking about compassion, I think we need to expand our definition a little bit. I think all of us grew up with the idea of compassion in maybe some religious context. And that's that's great, but the way the social scientists are, are defining it and studying it is it has a religious um, you know element, but it's much broader. So it is when you see someone suffering and that can include yourself, right and yeah. you want to help that person that's what that's what differentiates I say from altruism and um, and you want to alleviate that suffering in a non-judgmental way and and when they use suffering I think that comes from a religious context, but it can be distress. You know, any kind of, it doesn't have to be a huge thing like we're talking about caregiving. It can be anyone, you know, can't cross the street, can't leave the package. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be the life-changing events we're speaking about. So um,
1: right.
2: so what we are finding, what, what social scientists have found is that we are not programmed for survival of the fittest, right? That we are, when we are compassionate with others, we are tapping into our deepest biology, which is our need to connect with others. Because above all else, compassion creates connections with other people. And Mm. when we connect with other people, we experience huge health benefits. Right, we we release some. Just some of the examples is um, they've discovered a huge mind-body connection now. Right, so what we feel is manifested in our bodies, and so when we feel compassion and when we help people, it actually does things like cause us to release oxytocin into our system, and oxytocin is called the love hormone uh, by social scientists. Because it's um, it's an, it's a hormone that's released. It's kind of a feel good hormone. So it's released like when you breastfeed during sex, you know, pleasurable activities, and when you act compassionately, you're releasing oxytocin into your system, uh, and that has uh, one of the benefits we've got. Uh, it can lower your blood pressure. Uh, it can reduce your heart rate. By affecting the vagus nerve, um, it actually has been proven to reduce inflammation, and we know inflammation is at the heart of many diseases, including a lot of the autoimmune diseases, certain types of cancers. So that's a few of the Ways that it helps us—it actually increases longevity, and it, it helps mm-hmm. us uh, recover from disease faster. So it has huge health benefits for us. And that's not and even you... talking about the relieving de- uh, depression and anxiety on the other end of the spectrum. So, and they've done lots of studies. Everything I'm telling you has been, you know, documented by these social scientists in terms of the benefits of being compassionate.
1: You probably convinced some people when you when you said it releases the same biochemical processes as as sex and and that sort of thing. And you know, I think we're talking about well being, aren't we? What promotes our well being, regardless of our circumstance, in a way? Um, yes,
2: uh, if we want to, it, it's it. They say it reduces. Uh, it has. Better effect on you than to quit smoking and to stop being obese. I mean, it's just huge benefits um, in terms of promoting your well-being and and being healthy, both physically mm-hmm. and psychologically. Um, so
1: and so, um, there's also a recognition here. I, I think uh, you had a chapter in your book called "Living in a World of Grief." Um, To me, we're talking about something you can do ongoingly because, of course, uh, for you and I and everybody else, these difficult experiences are not going to stop happening. Um, And so do you also think there's a way that maybe practicing compassion takes us outside of just reacting to circumstance? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm just playing around with that idea in my head right now.
2: That's one of the elements, interesting, that's one of the elements of self-compassion is because, you know, as I said, compassion creates social connection, right, and the studies have shown that a lack of social connection is actually a greater detriment to our health than obesity, smoking, and high blood pressure. So we need to connect with other people. It goes, it meets our need, our deepest biological needs. And so when we When we do, when we connect with other people, when we tend to be in grief or we tend to be, uh, not compassionate, we we tend to be kind of isolated, right? And Mm -hmm. part of self-compassion is when you start to feel isolated and cutting yourself off, and that happens as a caregiver or when you're in the throes of grief. Um, one of the, one of the, the practices they want you to do is to, is to try to, See this as part of our human experience, part of our humanity. Other people are going through this. You know, this, this connects me with other people because we are all experiencing it. And so um, it's a, that's a very big piece of it. <laughs>
1: It's time for our second break. I'm very interested in, uh, you know, obviously I read superhero Sam saves his family. And I'm very interested in how you apply this with kids, um, having raised three of them and, uh, you know, now reflecting on that process of raising little beings um, because they're all grown up. Uh, I think that's a fascinating topic. So let's talk about that when we get back. And um, audience, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com. You can go to my Good Grief host page at Voice America. And to find Virginia Sampson, you can go to compassionmagic.com. Back after the break. (laughs) Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America
4: Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to good grief. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Virginia Hunter-Sampson, author of Compassion Magic for Adults and Superhero Sam Saves His Family, which is a children's book, which I wanted to uh, start this final segment talking about, Virginia, because uh, what was very interesting to me in that book is that um, in your kid's book, to me, compassion was an action in a sense, um, it was doing things to help and seeing how that benefits you too. Would that be fair to say? Yes, yeah, and I wondered if that's kind of a particular um a particularly strong way for kids to intersect with the, from your view, uh, with the concept of of compassion to actually see that that these acts of helping, um, give back
2: yes I think that for kids you know it has to be a little bit more concrete right uh, they need they need some kind of a physical action and they've done a lot of research on um, compassion training for not only adults but for children and they've started incorporating a lot of this into some of the public school curriculums but the idea of this is to start them thinking about other people right because kids and even adults can be very self-centered <laughs> So the idea, I think, is to start them thinking, well, how does that person feel? Then how can I help them if they're not feeling great, right? And then you find out when you do that, that makes you feel great, because they have discovered that compassion is contagious. So when you do something for somebody else, it, it's a cycle of compassion for yourself. It comes back to you, and it actually is like, kind of like a pebble in a pond. It spreads um, mm. to everyone. So that's the idea of the book, is it's something concrete that a child can do. And I've actually had a lot of people who have purchased the book tell me that their kids have been helping them with laundry and doing all kinds of things. And, you know, in the book's a little bit of that compassion for parents, right? Because when you have a three-year-old helping you do the laundry, let's face it, it takes a lot longer. You <laughs> kind of want to just go, oh, yikes. But, you know, when yes. you hang in there and you realize that there's more going on here than actually getting the laundry done, in a certain amount of time because we all tend to be too busy. Uh, I think the parent then gets a lesson out of that too about, you know, fostering compassion and being, you know, another lesson of compassion for them in terms of parenting.
1: It's interesting to me because uh, I'm kind of revisiting early childhood because I have two grandchildren who are four and six. And I noticed when they were very little, like as soon as they were physically able, maybe two, or so there is oh they just they just really want to help it, it feels like a biological urge uh, let me do that let me help with that you know and and in a way I I have this sense that we train them into thinking that that's work to be avoided uh, I, I I realize that's not quite on the topic of compassion but in, in a way it is because of this biological, Um, predisposition you're talking about to be helpful to other people and to connect with other people. I really see that in tiny children.
2: Yes, I know. And I do. don't you think we tend to discourage a little bit too because their help is not quite always help? You know, it makes more work for us. And I think even subconsciously we can discourage them from doing that or say, oh, later, or let me finish. And that kind of quashes their their good feelings, you know, and their rewards for helping us. So, yeah, and so it's a
1: kind of reciprocal, reciprocal compassion practice. We have to practice compassion for them in their inability to do it faster, better, perfectly, uh, as they are trying to help us. Yes?
2: Yes, and recognizing that we're doing more than laundry or yard work here. We are building a relationship. We're connecting. Right? We are connecting with them, and that that is the main thing we're doing. That the acti- we're connecting through this activity, which is, I think, how human beings connect a lot, but do not focus on the activity and accomplishing that as much as the act of connecting uh, with, your, with whoever you're doing this with. And we lose which, uh, that a lot. We're so busy and, I think, task-oriented in our society, we lose sight of that a lot.
1: We the economic done, pressure is. we
2: get on to our next yes. task on our to do list.
1: Right. And, and, you know, we're, um, uh, I'm so well aware, uh, I, I'm relatively privileged to a lot of people, but the time pressure uh, is that comes from the financial pressure. Of living, (laughs) of living, well, I live in the Bay Area, plenty of financial pressure around here. Um, It intersects with what we're talking about. Um, So I suppose there's also a compassion about sometimes not being able to take the time, you know, compassionately letting your child know that you you need to get it finished so you can go to work or whatever it might be.
2: I think you've going to, again, it's boundaries and limits, right? At times you might want to allot the time to, you know, let them do more and then explain to them that you can finish later or you'll do this or try to pick something simpler if you have a shorter period of time. Yeah, I think a little guidance there will, will help for sure. Yeah, I think we're all too busy. I, I sometimes think that's why compassion was a little easier for our parents' generation. They just, I think they were raised more with it because of their hardships. But I think mm-hmm. also they had more time. It, it does take time. And time is something that we're short of. And we're always in a hurry. And I think if you want to be compassionate, you, you have to devote some time to it. Like when I leave in the house in the morning, I, t- I try to, it's kind of silly, but I think I'm putting on my compassion cap, like a swim cap, right? The goal today is not to get mm-hmm. everything done, but the goal today is to be kind to everyone that I meet. Right and to interact with them in some positive way, whether I'm smiling, I'm waving, I'm saying hello. It doesn't have to be a lot, but that should be my goal rather than getting everything on my list done today. And uh, I think that, you know that that just came more naturally when people weren't as busy. But now we have to really focus on that because of all the uh, demands on our time and our energy these days.
1: Well, also, uh, of course, I don't know everything about. Um Say, my parents' generation, but I know some things from living with members of it. and I'm not sure the boundary part that we were speaking of earlier was necessarily focused on. So if you keep giving and giving and giving and giving without that, it stops feeling like compassion on the other on the receiving end uh, eventually um, becomes a little bit harsh or, I don't know, doesn't feel you don't feel the giving as much, maybe.
2: No, it definitely has to be reciprocal, I agree. I mean, there are situations like in caregiving where it's not going to be reciprocal, and you, you understand that and you've set different boundaries, but I agree. Um, some To be nurture ourselves, we have to have some people in our lives that we're getting reciprocal compassion from, right? And we can't always be giving and not getting anything back. Um, part of self-compassion is learning to give back to ourselves, uh, especially when we're not getting it from in a caregiver situation. But, yeah, I, I, I do agree with you on that.
1: This is a little bit of a change of subject, but I wanted to get to it before we leave today. Uh, you talked, you, you mentioned, and uh, I can't remember if it was your book or your website, that um, compassion can help the bottom line in business. Um, that was very intriguing, and I thought it might be compelling to some people that, that actually there might be an economic benefit Um, to practicing compassion, to acting compassionately. Could you elaborate a little on that?
2: Sure. I think our culture, again, has the message that if we want to succeed in business or in our career, we need to be self-focused. And the research is showing that it's absolutely the opposite, that we need to be other-focused. Again, boundaries, you know, not totally other-focused, but that where do we get our power uh, in a as a leader or in a a business, is from other people, right? And who do other people respect and want to follow? People who care about them, other Mm -hmm. than just for how many hours they bill or, you know, how many clients they bring in. I mean, I I realize that helps short-term, but in long-term, it's not going to help your business, right? Because obviously if your employees are happy, if they're feeling validated and cared for, then they're going to convey that to your customers, Right? They're going to be more caring. People are going to want to come back. And so that's, this is just a simplified way of saying there is this cycle of uh, benefits from showing that you care about other people, again, with boundaries. right? But if somebody comes in having a terrible day, are they expected, do you need to ignore it, or are there some ways that you can set a boundary and, and bring that person and let them know you care that something is going on in their life? And uh, Maybe find a, a way to help them that's appropriate in that situation, and they're going to feel validated. They're going to be healthy, happier. They're going to be healthier, right? And they're going to convey all sure. of that to your clients.
1: I think it may have stood out more to me because um, you wor- have worked your whole career in the legal field, which can be very – uh, my daughter has many – many friends who are attorneys and there's so much pressure and so little kind of recognition of them as, as, um, living, breathing mothers and fathers and, you know, um, and so, um, I think that's such an important message, uh, that you somehow got, uh, maybe, maybe as a result of being in the legal field or maybe, um, on this on the side and trying to put those two together, um, that intrigues yeah, it me. Yeah, you were
2: just basically a billable hour. And when I was a single mom, they would just tell me if I didn't perform, they'd just fire me. I mean, I had extra pressure on me. I wasn't allowed to never took any time off when my kids were sick. You know, you just you, when you walk through that door, you had to put everything behind you. And of course, you do want to do that. You want to be a productive employee, but you still want to feel validated as a whole person. And they're also discovering one of the other benefits is when you validate people as whole people and you don't have that pressure on them, that's when they come up with good ideas. That's when they're more uh, creative and they collaborate. Our best ideas and our best work come when we collaborate with other people. And creating these kind of atmospheres encourages us to be creative and fosters creativity and collaboration. I mean, look at the tech companies. One of the reasons that they're good at that or they have been in the past and they're, they're saying that that's what we need to do is create this kind of culture of helping each other, of compassion, of caring. And we will, it actually, you will become more profitable as a business and you will become a better leader. You will be more successful in your career by helping other people, whether it's mentoring them, you know, helping them find jobs and in a direct leadership role, there's huge benefits for that.
1: Yeah. It, it, I think it's going to be a, um, a long process. Potentially, you know, even uh, even thinking about um, uh, Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook, whose husband died. And, you know, it was revolutionary that after that she got 30 day bereavement leave, which, of course, we know is a very short time. Uh, So getting that into the culture that caring for people that way is good for the bottom line is going to take some work, isn't it? But that will be both of our hope going forward.
2: I, yes, I agree. That is a hard <laughs> sell. When people uh, invite me to speak, it's usually not to a business group. Um, <laughs> yeah. just, thanks you know, for, I've spoken thanks. A couple and of, to a they kind of look at you like you're speaking a foreign language. i going to have to leave it you know, there you want to plant the day, that Virginia.
1: But I want to thank you so much for being with me, and I want to direct people to go to CompassionMagic.com to find out more about your work. There's obviously plenty more to say. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week